0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Abortion Pills, What's Next?, Please welcome Sarah Parshall-Perry, Senior Legal Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies.
2: Welcome, everyone. It's good to see you all and uh, greetings to those of you who are online as well. Today's topic is one of increasing debate, discussion, and importance. After the Supreme Court's watershed decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health last year, the issue of legislative bodies being free to restrict abortion and its methodologies, including abortion pills, has become newly relevant. That includes methods of abortion, which account for 50% chemical abortions of all of those within the country. Many states have restricted abortion pills and for good reason. Abortion pills have a complication rate four times that of first trimester surgical abortions. But over a period of years, the FDA has removed long-standing critical safety restrictions like in-person doctor visits and a group of pro-life doctors has asked the Supreme Court to reinstate those protections. Joining me today are three experts who are doing yeoman's work in shielding women from the dangers of abortion pills while they seek to protect the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. We'll be taking questions both from you all in our in-person audience and online, so I encourage you to hold them until the end. I'm going to invite our esteemed panel to the stage while I introduce them. Congressman Bob Goode has represented Virginia's 5th Congressional District in the 118th U.S. Congress since January of 2021. He is a member of the House Freedom Caucus and has been named to the Budget Committee and the Education and Workforce Committee, where he is chairman of the Health, Employment, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Eric Baptist serves as senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, focusing on administrative litigation and regulatory advocacy. Eric was previously a partner at Wiley Rain, one of the largest firms in D.C., and before that, Senior Deputy General Counsel at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And last on our stage is Dr. Christina Francis, who is a board-certified OBGYN from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and the Chief Executive Officer of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or APLOG. She is an associate scholar with the Charlotte Lozier Institute, a board member of Indiana Right to Life, and a physician member of the Abortion Pill Reversal Network. Let's welcome our guests. (laughs) Dr. Francis, I'm gonna start with you, if I can. And I'd like to talk a little bit about how an abortion pill works for those who don't understand in the audience.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think it's important when we talk about chemical abortions or the abortion pills to, to understand exactly what it is that we're talking about, because sometimes there's some confusion out there about that. Um, some people will equate it with the morning-after pill or Plan B, emergency contraception. Um, but that's not what we're talking about when we talk about abortion pills. What we're talking about is actually a very specific two-drug combination. The first drug is called mifepristone, or you might have heard it referred to as mifeprex or RU-486. And that drug is intended to block the action of a crucial hormone in early pregnancy called progesterone. And it does that by binding to the receptor that progesterone is meant to bind to. And so you can think of it like a key that you can insert into a lock, but you can't actually turn the lock. So it binds to the receptor, but it doesn't activate the receptor. So it doesn't allow progesterone to have the effect that it is supposed to, uh, which is to set up good connections between mom and baby that promote flow of oxygen and nutrients to that baby. And so essentially what that first drug does is it shuts off that flow of oxygen and nutrients to the baby, leads to breakdown of those connections between mom and baby, and ultimately then leads oftentimes to the death of that fetal human. And then the second drug a woman takes 24 to 48 hours later, that's called mesoprostol or cytotec. Uh, We use that drug actually uh, for a lot of different things within obstetrics, but for this indication it's given to induce labor, essentially. So it causes a woman's uterus to contract um, and it causes her to experience labor. And I think that's important for people to understand as well. So she'll have very significant cramping, uh, very painful bleeding, and it causes her uterus to contract and then expel the baby and other pregnancy tissues as well.
2: So we've heard claims that the abortion pill is as safe as Tylenol. In your experience as an OBGYN, is that the case?
3: Um, Absolutely not, I can confidently say that I've never been called to the emergency room to take care of a Tylenol complication, and I have been called to the emergency room many, many times to take care of complications of these drugs. Um, That doesn't mean that people don't present to emergency rooms due to Tylenol complications, but those complications are when they overdose on Tylenol. Um, These complications with chemical abortions are when women take the FDA-approved dosage and regimen uh, for chemical abortions. And as you said in your opening, we know that chemical abortions have a four times higher complication rate than surgical abortions. And part of the problem of, of how women are able to continue to be told these lies that it's safer than Tylenol is because the FDA, and I know I think Eric will get into this later, but the FDA does not do a good job of capturing these complications. They're very difficult to report to the FDA, actually, the process that you have to go through, and oftentimes it's not the abortion providers that are caring for these complications. It's... Physicians like me who are seeing women in emergency rooms who have been abandoned to their local emergency room because of complications like infection, hemorrhage, or really heavy bleeding, uh, retained tissue where they might need an emergency surgery, and, and you know better studies that are registry-linked where you're not dependent on a patient reporting their own complication or a physician reporting the complication actually show that um, emergency room visits may be as high as 35% of women Mm. take these drugs. Um, You don't see that with Tylenol. And again, the FDA approved dosage of Tylenol, you don't see that level of complications. So, Eric, I want to talk
2: to you a little bit, but I've got some graphics here that indicate exactly how many portions of American abortions are chemical in nature, and you can see that they've gone up precipitously as abortion itself has actually declined. So let's talk a little bit about litigation in which you were counsel for the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine in a lawsuit against the FDA. Will you explain that litigation specifically?
0: Yeah, ADF represents eight different plaintiffs in this lawsuit. We represent four national medical associations and four individual doctors. These medical associations have been pushing back against FDA over its initial approval of chemical abortion drugs and then its subsequent removal of safeguards for this regimen. These individual doctors and the members of these national medical associations have also had to treat and care for countless women across this country in America's emergency rooms because the FDA has absolved the abortionists and the prescribers of these drugs from taking care of these women after receiving these drugs. And it falls upon America's emergency room doctors to clean up that mess and treat and care for these women who have been harmed. And that's why we're bringing this lawsuit, not just on behalf of our doctors who are our clients, but on behalf of their patients as well, because ultimately this is about women's health and safety that the FDA has disregarded for far too long.
2: So can you explain to us what a risk evaluation mitigation strategy is, or a REMS, and how it plays significantly into this litigation?
0: When the FDA determines that a drug cannot just be safe on the marketplace without any post-approval restrictions, it imposes a REMS, or a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. And this is something that the FDA has done since day one because it realized back in the year 2000 that mifepristone presented some unique dangers with the the usage of the drug. And so the FDA put some safeguards on. These safeguards can be what we call in-person dispensing. That seems very technical. What does that mean? It means that a patient or a woman has to come and receive mifepristone before taking this drug. That's important because it's not just that you have to go to a brick-and-mortar facility to get these drugs, but when you do that, you have an appointment. You meet with a medical professional who can screen you for life-threatening conditions that will preclude you from taking these drugs. When you have a regimen that you can just send it over the mail, let's say, and you don't have that dispensing requirement, you, you lose that ability to be screened for these life-threatening complications, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about those in a little bit, but that's essentially what it means, and that's the standard that FDA is held to, is Essentially, it's like, if, can this drug be in the marketplace without these restrictions? And if not, it can't be in the marketplace or it needs those restrictions.
2: So the first approval of MifiPrex was in the year 2000. And since then, as you'll talk about, there have been a series of loosening restrictions on the actual use of mifepristone and access to the same drug. So obviously, the significance of the increase has been felt even as the number of abortions have declined nationally. But these series of changes have made it specifically easier to get access to the medication with less reporting on the actual complications and the injuries themselves. So talk a little bit about what's happened over the years with the FDA's specific process of approving the medication and what's changed that is ultimately the heart of the case.
0: When FDA approved the drug in 2000, again, the agency recognized that there were some dangers inherent with mifepristone, and that's exactly what they did. They built those safeguards. And back then, the law required them to call pregnancy an illness, which again, that's at the forefront of our lawsuit because it doesn't fit squarely. Obviously, pregnancy is not an illness, but FDA had it classified as an illness to get these safeguards approved. And so what these safeguards were, were three in-person doctor visits, where you had a day one uh, doctor visit to be screened for those life-threatening conditions. You had a day three one to get the second drug, again, to ensure there were no complications along the way, make sure the woman takes the drug at the appropriate time and in the appropriate manner, because there's a very specific route of administration that that second drug is used for. And then a day 14 in-person doctor visit to treat and determine if there are any life-threatening complications, such as any fetal parts remaining or any other pregnancy tissue remaining that leads to life-threatening infections. What the FDA has done over time has stripped away those safeguards. In 2016, what the FDA even acknowledged was major changes to the regimen. The FDA got rid of two of those three doctor's appointments. So now you just get the drug up front or both drugs up front and then not have any foul visits to, to be seen for any potential life-threatening complications or, uh, uh, or infections. Um, they got rid of the doctor from the equation. That was significant for two reasons. One is obviously when you can meet with a doctor and they can have a medical judgment about whether you should take these drugs or if you have any complications. But when you remove the doctor from the equation, when there are complications, it's not going to be that prescriber who's going to treat you because they can't perform surgery. It's going to be Dr. Francis and her colleagues at APLOG and elsewhere in this country to treat and care for those women with emergency drugs. Um, And then finally, I'm going to go to 2021. Uh, Well, in 2016, among those changes, the FDA made 11 different changes to the regimen. I won't get into those details. At the end, they said, well, you know what we're also going to do? We're not going to require the prescribers to report any non fatal complications associated with this. So in theory, a woman could go to the emergency room unconscious, have to be revived two times, have blood transfusions. The FDA does not want to know about that complication. They did not require it uh, after 2016. Fast forward to 2021, the FDA got rid of that first an only doctor's appointment, and said now you can just have mail-order chemical abortions. Um, That's dangerous, again, because now you're gonna have no doctor involved, you're not gonna have any medical professional screening of women before receiving these drugs. Um, And then obviously not caring for that person at the end of the day as well. And that is inherently dangerous. But I will note the justifications that the FDA gave for this was well, we haven't seen many adverse events, you know, during the COVID period where we waived this in-person re- requirement, so we don't think there are any complications going to be associated going forward with this permanent change. Well, we said, well, five years ago we got rid of that reporting requirement, so how can you use that as a basis to determine it? But that's essentially what the FDA did, and that's again one of the many reasons why we brought this lawsuit,
2: Congressman. Let me ask you a question: um, Can Congress? broadly speaking, restrict abortion, and specifically so the shipment of abortion pills by mail?
1: Not only Congress should, or or can, Congress should do so. Uh, There's no more important issue certainly than the issue of life and death as it applies to abortion and you think about what is government's normal responsibility to protect the safety and security of its citizens including unborn life in the womb if we're not looking out for them who is going to be but uh, when, when many times it's been misquoted or misunderstood uh, or misrepresented what happened with the Dobbs decision I've had many conservative friends in Washington and back in my home state of Virginia uh, say that oh this tur- the, the Supreme Court turned it over to the states they turned it over to to the the state representatives. They took it away from Congress. That is not true. If you read the Dobbs decision, it turned it over to the people and the states, which means they're elected representatives in Washington uh, and in their respective states. So it doesn't require Congress to regulate abortion, but it does give Congress, again, the rightful ability to do that. And it's very concerning, quite frankly, that some of my friends in, in Congress who were signing on to the Life at Conception Act with me, pre-Dobb's decision. Many of them became hyper-federalist all of a sudden after Dobb's decision, I felt very lonely as we continued to push for the Life at Conception Act and for a discharge petition to that effect last term. So we ought to continue to unashamedly, unapologetically fight for that. And by the way, the timing of this, we just came off of an election in Virginia. And the narrative now is, oh, abortion's a loser. We've got to surrender on abortion. We've got to give in on abortion. We've got to be like the Democrats on abortion. Then maybe we can win elections. I would argue, what's the point of winning elections if you're not going to fight for life? But but beyond that, what was Virginia's position? What was the state of Virginia's political leader's position on abortion? We're okay with 94% of abortions because we want a 15-week ban, and the Democrats, the other side, wants 100% of abortions. So we're going to rally in the the red areas and the the, the conservatives and the red base uh, to fight for 6% of abortions. And I submit that's the reason why we had low red turnout in Virginia. For those who are reading into that this was all about one particular issue, that people didn't vote on inflation and grocery prices and gas prices and crime and the border and education everything else that we're winning on we lost only because everybody who voted in virginia was voting on whether or not they could have abortions up to the moment of birth and have uh, you have to pay for with your tax dollars so yes we ought to be involved and my office is working on a new bill to be released this year that will be a broad abortion bill that deals with the commerce clause and the federal government does have authority, as it applies to this, because we oversee, Congress oversees the post office, congressionally. And all mail order abortions take place through the post office. Secondly, we have the ability to regulate commerce. Thirdly, we have the ability, obviously it's our job to make laws that are consistent with the 14th Amendment protection uh, to life without, obviously, uh, right to life without uh, due process being in place. So yes, Congress should, Congress must. And uh, this is not a partisan event, but I'm a partisan. And we, as the Republican Party, must be the party of life. We did introduce a bill also, the Teleabortion Prevention Act, which says that uh, because as, as this movement has tried to remove the personal interaction of abortion, to sort of try to sanitize it to where mothers don't know until it's too late the complications that Dr. Francis can speak to much better than I can, the health complications and the risk to them, of course, Male order abortions are fatal every time for one person or the two people involved physically in, 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 in the process. But our Teleabortion Prevention Act would say that at a minimum, a minimum health standards need to be met, that the, 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 the patient, the mother, would have to have an in-person visit. Uh, the physician would have to be present or the medical practitioner during the process, and there would have to be a follow-up to at least try to protect mothers' uh, uh, health, at least uh, during this process, while we ought to be working to uh, to reduce or to eliminate abortion uh, legally, I believe, as a Congress as well.
2: Eric, let me go back to the case for a little bit. Um, can you tell us where it stands now? Uh, and then I'm going to follow up by asking you precisely what impact that litigation may or may not have on litigation that's percolating up through the federal appellate circuits.
0: Sure. Right now, we're briefing in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, the other side has gone to, the, the other side being FDA and one of the two drug manufacturers of Mifepristone have gone to the Supreme Court asking the, the Supreme Court to review uh, their lower court losses. And let me tell you how we got there, because uh, I like to talk about our victories. So last year in November, we, we filed a lawsuit against the FDA and a bunch of other federal defendants challenging the 2000 approval, the 2016 changes, and the 2021 mail order abortion approval as well. We. Filed on behalf of those eight plaintiffs, our district court in the Northern District of Texas granted our preliminary request for early relief in this lawsuit pending the litigation. So it's a preliminary injunction motion that we got granted on April 7th of this year. The other side immediately went up to the Supreme Court ultimately and asked, hey, can you put a pause on this victory because they raised certain concerns. So the Supreme Court hit the pause button back in April on our victory. So we haven't realized the gains that we achieved at the district court. The Supreme Court let it go back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which oversees the federal court system in the state of Texas. And the Fifth Circuit on August 16th ruled again in our favor, saying what the FDA did was unlawful in 2016 and 2021. And that's what is pending before the court right now by the FDA and and Danco Laboratories, which is the other uh, abortion manufacturer. They went to the Supreme Court and said, we don't like uh, the losses that we received on the 2016 and 21 changes that I've kind of outlined already. And so that's being briefed. Uh, It should be briefed through Thanksgiving, and then we'll see what the court does in the interim. And then what that means is we're asking the FDA or the courts to send the FDA back to the original regimen. Again, that's the three-person doctor visits, bring the doctor back in the equation, reduce the permissible gestational age from 10 weeks to seven weeks. Um, But there are other lawsuits going around the country. Shortly after we filed our lawsuit in November of last year, um, a bunch of lawsuits cropped up around the states, challenging state restrictions in North Carolina, West Virginia, even Virginia, saying that do the states have the authority to challenge or restrict or provide, I would say, more safeguards to women who take chemical abortion drugs that may be more stringent or safer than what the FDA has permitted to the current date, right? If if you can just mail these drugs, can a state of West Virginia say, no more telehealth, you at least need to be with a doctor or medical professional. Um, And that's been challenged in federal court and, can, this is kind of the, the question is can, can states restrict drugs more stringently than the federal government? Does the FDA set the floor or is that the floor and the maximum and nothing else can happen? I think that's important in particular, I look at the West Virginia case in particular because I think the FDA has failed the American public with regards to our opioid crisis. And if the state of West Virginia in particular wants to do something to protect its citizens from those dangerous drugs, can it do so? Or whatever the FDA has blessed, that is the, the last word on it and the state can't do any more to protect its citizens even though if the FDA has failed it in its job at that regard. And so the same is true with Mifepristone. If the FDA is failing to protect its citizens in the state of West Virginia or North Carolina, can the states do something in the interim? I argue yes. And I think this is another case that may ultimately be resolved by the Supreme Court.
2: So I'll play legal devil's advocate for a minute. Um, Some have claimed that this is a usurpation of the authority of the executive to approve in their esteemed judgment, their scientific determination, that a drug is suitable for marketing, and their subsequent determinations of loosening of these restrictions are determinations that were made in their professional capacity and should not be usurped by the judiciary in making a determination. What say you to those criticisms? Our, our lawsuit
0: is consistent with the Constitutional Republic that we established here, because we have checks and balances on the government. We have the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch. When Congress Congress delegates its authority to the executive branch, it must give instructions to that federal agency of how to conduct its business. And that's exactly what happened here. When, when FDA became entrusted by Congress to be the nation's gatekeeper for legalized drugs in this country, Congress gave specific instructions. Every new drug has to have Um, clinical investigations that are adequate in testing, sufficient information, and contain substantial evidence of safety and effectiveness of the drug under the approved regimen. And that's something we're challenging in this federal court because in the 2016, FDA made 11 wholesale changes to the regimen. They've never actually tested or required testing of that regimen that's been approved. They relied on different cherry-picked studies that had safeguards that are nowhere in the regimen to say that this drug was safe. They looked at one change and said that change is safe. This change, this change is safe. But you combine all 11 changes, that's a different story. And every federal court that has looked at this case said that's a dereliction of duty because Congress told you to look at something else. And that's why we brought this lawsuit, because it's a checks and balance on the FDA. If the FDA had followed the rules, it would have had a different outcome. They didn't, and that's why we're suing them, and that's exactly what we're doing here. This is a proper constitutional order in our case, and that's why we continue to win.
2: Dr. Francis, let me talk a little bit about the real-world impact of removing some of these safety regulations, of extending the gestational age at which abortion pills can be used, or eliminating that in-person doctor visit or follow-up. What, in your system of understanding of being within these particular medical fields that are dealing with post abortive women, what kind of real world impact does that have?
3: Absolutely. Well, you know, the the drugs as as Eric said, even under quote unquote ideal circumstances where all of these safeguards are being followed, still have high complication rates. But we are seeing those increase exponentially now that those safeguards have been removed. We've known for a long time that the farther along in pregnancy a woman is when she takes these drugs, the higher the risk of complications. And yet the FDA you know, expanded out to 10 weeks, but then now is saying you don't really even have to have any sort of confirmation of how far along in pregnancy you are. This removes any kind of informed consent whatsoever for women. So as physicians, a, a basic part of our ethics Is that we provide fully informed consent that is specific to the patient that is sitting in front of me. So when I'm, for example, when I'm counseling a woman about the risk to her of a c-section, if that's what I'm recommending, her risks might look different than the patient in the room next door because of various um, medical issues that she might have or whatever. So my informed consent has to be specific to her when I'm talking about the risks, benefits, and alternatives to whatever it is that I'm recommending. By not documenting gestational age, by not screening for ectopic pregnancy, we are completely abolishing informed consent. So this really constitutes, in, in my opinion, medical malpractice, what's being done now. Women are being treated callously. They're they're being given these drugs at who knows how far along they are. You know, the American College of OBGYNs who led the fight to get these safeguards removed. Even they acknowledge that 50% of women will be wrong about how far along they are in their pregnancy, and that any pregnancy that's not dated by an ultrasound should be considered suboptimally dated. And yet, in the context of abortion, they argue that ultrasounds are burdensome and unnecessary. Also, we're not screening women for ectopic pregnancies. These are life-threatening illnesses. I've taken care of hundreds of women with ectopic pregnancies, many of whom had no risk factors, and before their ectopic pregnancy ruptured and they were bleeding in their abdomen, they had no idea that they had that ectopic pregnancy. These occur in one in 50 pregnancies, so they're not uncommon. They're actually very common. And the real danger here is that the symptoms that a woman will experience when she's having an ectopic pregnancy that's rupturing are exactly the same symptoms that a woman experiences when she goes through a chemical abortion. And so now, you know, we've really set up this almost like wild, wild west that is harmful for women where they're being given these drugs. These drugs are being marketed to women, especially for women who don't have access to immediate health care. And, you know, then these women are going to be told, you're going to have cramping, you're going to have bleeding. That's very normal don't go to the hospital, that's a normal, you know, thing to experience with your chemical abortion. And yet they could be rupturing an ectopic pregnancy. And those minutes, those hours that they stay at home, thinking that those are just normal symptoms of their abortion could be the difference between life and death for them. Mm -hmm. So this is extremely dangerous. We're also seeing a toll on women's mental health. And I think this is something that's not being discussed enough. Women are not told what to expect. I know this because of patients that I've taken care of when they've come into me after their abortion. They're not being told that they are going to see their baby. And even at 10 weeks, you know, that upper limit of approval in the U.S., that 10-week-old fetal human being looks exactly like a human being. There's no mistaking that. And women are now calling in to post-abortion helplines in droves saying, I passed my baby. They told me just to sit on the toilet and flush it, but I can't do that. It's my baby. What do I do? Yeah. This is taking an extreme toll on their mental health. They're not being counseled about it. No one is supporting them other than those of us in the pro-life movement Try to get through this mental trauma. And so it just is an all-out assault on the physical health of women and girls in this country, on the mental health of women and girls in this country, and, um, you know, again informed consent is just being completely obliterated because women aren't being told about this one last point that i'll make i think when people hear about on you know women obtaining these pills online or people talk about telehealth I think that there's this concept that they're at least meeting with a medical professional, maybe even over video. But I think it's important for people to understand the vast majority of these websites where women are now able to obtain these pills don't even have that. They get, a, they get online, they fill out a form, and then the pills are shipped to them. And so there really is no interaction. They're not being screened for intimate partner violence. They're not being screened to see, are they being trafficked? Or is this a trafficker who's getting online and ordering these pills in droves so that he can force abortions on his victims. Um, Yeah, I I think the numbers of ways that this is harming women and girls in this country uh, really are are innumerable. And it really is something that no matter where someone stands on the issue of abortion, whether you think that it should be legal or whether um, you think that it should be illegal, this area is something that we all should be in agreement on that women and girls deserve better than this in our country. Congressman, you talked a little bit about sort of the fractured
2: nature of the quest to preserve unborn lives. Talk a little bit about what the legislative messaging should be at the federal level on the issue of abortion.
1: I think it should be a multi-pronged approach. Number one, we need to show compassion on the issue for uh, mothers who find themselves in difficult situations, who feel like they have no hope or have no options. Uh, we ought to be working hard to tra- change uh, hearts and minds. You know, it's encouraging that the younger generation is more pro-life. Uh, that's a, a new phenomena. You, all you have to do is a, attend the, uh, the pro-life marches, and you see how many high school and college students are there. And that's so encouraging, so refreshing to see. And I think it's because they have seen the ultrasounds of their siblings who look like you know Uncle So and So or aunts. I mean, just the, the descriptive visual nature that you can see. That wasn't the case when my kids were little, but. Uh, we also want to support crisis pregnancy centers my wife and i have supported our local crisis pregnancy center financially and otherwise for years who come alongside mothers uh, who come and see them who uh, again feel like they have no hope and no options and they support those mothers irrespective of their decision on life by the way uh, support them pre-birth through the birth process and hopefully obviously afterwards as they need help taking care of that little one post-birth But at the same time, we also need to be unashamed about the fact that as a Congress, as legislators, we ought to stand unashamedly, unapologetically pro-life and and try to fight to save every life. You think about the impact of the decision that was finally overturned. The only decision in the history of the country that cost 63 million lives, the, the, the Roe v. Wade decision. So we have now 63 million people who are not in our country today because of that decision. The average age of those individuals, a 50-year-old decision, would be about 25 years old. The oldest would be about 50 years old. We have about 35 million people who are not participating in our economy, by the way, that can't be hired, that can't account for productivity, that can't pay into Social Security. And we all know individuals around us who uh, who were who were born in difficult circumstances, difficult life situations, are so grateful that their mother chose life. And we don't have you ever met anyone who said, "Gosh, I wish my mother had not chosen." Mm-hmm. We also all know individuals. Uh, who, mothers who had pregnancies that they were told there's going to just be a, just a really serious situation where they should abort that child, and then that child was born perfectly healthy. Now I don't believe we ought to put that value on life based on our standard of you know what kind of a life quality of life they're going to have, but we've seen those situations where the medical practitioners were wrong on how they predicted that that child was going to be deformed in some way or disadvantaged in some way, and they came out perfectly healthy. Again, I still don't think that would be a justification for putting that on the mother. Uh, Ronald Reagan famously said, everybody who's against everybody who's for abortion has already been born. And, uh, th- and that, that's certainly an, an obvious truth to it. But legislators have a role to play. Uh, we need to stand up unashamedly, un- unapologetically pro-life. Moderation, moderation inspires no one moderation means lack of inspiration moderation means lack of turnout moderation means you lose elections and even if everyone is not with uh, you if you're a pro-life legislator as i am on every issue including on the life issue very few people go to the polls and vote just so they can have abortion up to the moment of birth at taxpayer expense anytime for any reason and frankly those votes are not in play anyway And but people will respect you if you have integrity and you're truthful and you don't tell one audience one thing and tell another audience another thing. And again, if we're going to stand up for anything, it ought to be the issue of life. There was a time when slavery was legal in this country, and I don't know what the polls showed 150 years ago. But thank God we didn't surrender on an issue that was that was the stain of the 17 and the 1800s, the way that abortion has been in the 1900s and the 2000s here. And so at the state level and the federal level, we need to redouble our efforts to be more effective in messaging, but be bold on the issue with humility and compassion at the same time.
2: Dr. Francis, let me ask you, you've seen so many of these women who are already in the state of aborting their unborn child or post complications, and they come to you for assistance and medical aid. What do you wish you could tell them before they get to that point? What's important for them to know?
3: Well, I think, you know, I think I'll answer that by, by telling you what I, I used to be in office practice, now I just work in the hospital, but when I was still in office practice, and I had a woman come to me and tell me that she was contemplating abortion, the first thing I would ask her is, why do you think that that's the best decision for you? You know, without, without judgment, I just wanted to get her thoughts on why is it that you think that that's the right decision for you? It was a very informative question. Not only did it open up for her to be honest with me, um, but it's a very informative question because oftentimes what I would hear is, I don't have the support that I need, or my parents are pressuring me, or my boyfriend is pressuring me, um, or I don't think that I can uh, be a parent right now because I lack the skills that I might need to be a parent, you know, any number of things. And so um, what I would want a woman to know before she chooses a chemical abortion is that, you don't have to make this decision. We have supports out there for you. We can take better care of you than this. And then the next thing that I would want her to know is um, are the dangers that are associated with a chemical abortion. That it's not going to be the easy fix that she's been told that it's going to be. That not only might she suffer these physical complications in the immediate term, even potentially in the long term, there's an increased risk of preterm birth in future pregnancies if she ends up needing a surgery to complete her abortion. But not only are there those physical risks, but there is, like I said, that mental trauma. We know that um, women who've had abortions have a six to seven times higher risk of suicide at some point in their life. And again, I think the impact of chemical abortions on the mental health of women in the midst, by the way, of a mental health pandemic in this country that is so inadequately treated and women don't have, talk about having access to care, women don't have access to mental health care in this country because we have such a shortage of mental health care providers and yet we are dispensing these drugs, not only that in and of themselves are gonna cause worsening mental health outcomes, but in the way that they're being dispensed, with this lack of counseling, this lack of follow-up, lack of support for these women. So what I would want her to know is, this is not going to be the fix that you think that it is. It's not gonna be the fix that you've been told it's going to be. Instead, let us come alongside of you. Let us support you. Let us help you carry this baby to term, and then you can choose to parent that child. If so, we'll support you in that, or you can choose to place that child for adoption. But ultimately, I think what women in this country and girls in this country deserve is they deserve our support. They deserve for us to put our heads together and come up with real solutions for the problems that they're facing and not continue to put the band-aid of abortion over it that fixes nothing. I'd like to
2: open up the floor to audience questions, both online and in person. Yes. Uh, JP Hogan. I'm not going to the abortion pills specifically, but on originalism with religious liberty.
1: It seems the founders left a healthcare right under religious liberty under the history of healing. So would the if the if that is so that your only uh, healthcare right is under religious liberty would the FDA have to be a state-based drug agency everywhere. So on the legal side of things does are we looking at it unconstitutionally?
0: Uh, I'm not sure if I follow your question quite correctly but um I'll put it this way. One thing that the FDA had to do when it approved mifepristone was say that it provided a meaningful therapeutic benefit. And and frankly, nothing about mifepristone provides a meaningful therapeutic benefit at all as the good congressman noted, um, it it destroys one life. And it also, as Dr. Francis noted, it it also tends to ruin another life as well. And so what benefit does that drug present compared to, let's say, surgical abortion? The numbers show that surgical abortions are, in theory, safer than the chemical abortion drugs. So I think there's, there's something fundamentally wrong with the way the FDA reviewed this drug in the first place, that, again, it had been delegated by Congress for the federal agency to review and how to review it. And the way the fda had to put that square peg in the wrong hole it just didn't fit and they tried to jam it in and this is why they're in court today because they failed to do so
2: other questions
0: Uh, tom mcdonough from american American family project for congressman good Um, i've been looking for about a year for a way to slip into the appropriations bill some money for crisis pregnancy centers Mm both for their own benefit and maybe for a kind of a more national public relations project. The money hopefully would come out of other monies, anti-family, anti-life monies that the government is providing. I haven't been able to figure out how to get any amendment like that into any appropriations bill. Do you have a clue?
1: That is a great question. And actually the I've been in Congress three years, and no one has raised that to me yet, so I'm glad that you did, and I have my legis- senior legislative aide with me here who will take notes on that, and we will look into that, because we're fighting through the appropriations process now, and one of the great responsibilities the House has, as you're noting here, is the power of the purse and to regulate where dollars go. And so while we ha- you hear about, oh, gosh, we gotta cut pa- Planned Parenthood funding, which obviously we should. What an egregious offense that we continue to perpetuate Planned Parenthood funding. Uh, and we, 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 we've been fighting on the mifepristone uh, drug, and we've been fighting against that. And the agriculture bill, by the way, by the, one of the reasons why it failed was because we insisted that the, the, the cancellation of the Biden policy on the mifepristone drug, drug would be p- part of that new ag bill. And we got some friends on the other side of the Republican spectrum who weren't happy about that. But, you know, we, can you think about what would be, a, you know, we do, we do uh, fund as a government many charitable type. Uh, Even some faith-based organizations are eligible for, you know, heck, we fund. Catholic charities to bring illegals into our country at millions on an annual basis. But that's a a great point, and I appreciate you raising it. So we will look into that, see how we can fight on that level. And the other thing I'll just add to that, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about our new speaker, and I think, you know, from a legal standpoint, but uh, Mike Johnson, who was constitutional attorney and fought on these issues uh, from a uh, legal standpoint before he came to Congress, he is a partner in this for us, and he is a strong, staunch pro-life uh, speaker. Uh, I would suggest perhaps the strongest pro-life speaker we've ever had. And so he'll be a partner in ways that we can fight for life. So that, thank you for raising that.
2: Other questions? Yes, down in front here. Uh, I'll well, have you wait until the microphone comes down. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, could, I don't know exactly who would answer this, but moving the profits of cervical abortion into medical abortion seems like it would transition profits in the abortion industry to i guess it's dana pharmaceutical or you know the the maker the the pharmaceutical and away from planned parenthood among others is there any justification for that assumption
0: well, I think the answer is, I think as one of the slides show that the, the increase in chemical abortions in recent history versus the decrease in surgical abortions showed that now over 50% of all chemical abor- of all abortions are done by chemical means as opposed to surgical means. Uh, was Is that to the detriment of Planned Parenthood? I, I don't know, per se, because who's prescribing these drugs and sending them out? A lot of times it's Planned Parenthood. They're just making a profit in different means. And, and to the degree Danco Laboratories is a Cayman Island-based um, company, and they have very secret of uh ownership. We don't know who owns them, but you know someone could say that those who are, control Planned Parenthood also control Danco. I don't know if that's correct or wrong, but that's one day maybe we'll find out the truth on that. So to answer your question, it's it it's moving around a lot, but it may be with the same people at the end of the day.
2: Other questions from our audience. Yes. Here. Can you all speak to
3: the thank you? Can you all speak to the questionable development and distribution of the chemical abortion pill i know that the french pharmaceutical company um, Roussel am who developed it in um, 1982 had links even to nazi germany and the development of the um the the gas that was used in auschwitz even and even in the distribution of it eugenic connections like with um, the population council and planned parenthood in general Um, can you all speak to how that history should inform how we address the chemical abortion issue here in you know, the 21st century. Looks
0: like Dr. Francis wants to answer that. <laughs> uh, as Dr. Have- Francis's lawyer. Maybe I'll take that one. No, well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think far not. Yeah, I think it's, it's a fair question, and something we raise in our complaint in our lawsuit. We we openly point out that. Population Council, maybe people don't realize this, and this is something I didn't realize before I even joined ADF, was this entity known as the Population Council was the one who obtained the U.S. patent rights to Mifepristone from a French manufacturer who had a German parent company. But the Population Council, you're like, what was that entity? It was founded by John Rockefeller III, who was a known eugenicist. Um, You have to ask yourself that question. Is like, why was the Population Council seeking this drug approval? I'll just ask the rhetorical question. But they're the ones who got it approved. They're the one who the Clinton administration a strong arm, the French manufacturer, to give those U.S. patent rights. It's interesting because I think, again, the history is from day two of the second full day of the Clinton administration. The, he directed his cabinet to bring RU-46. That's what it was known at the time. I'm old enough to remember that term, so for some of you in the audience may remember that more than Mifepristone, to give those patent rights to a U.S. entity. The only U.S. entity at the time that was willing to take on this drug was the Population Council. So they're the ones who submitted the new drug application with the FDA. They're the ones who obtained the approval and and then this random new Cayman Islands based company called Danko Laboratories, whose ownership is only becoming out now. There's, I think there's a Mother Jones article that talks about the sordid history of this drugs company's genesis and its beginning. And it's not very good um, to see how it became about. And whose ownership today, we don't know. But that, that's the origin of this drug. It's not your, your, your average Pfizer coming along and asking for this new drug manufacturer. It's actually Population Council um, that sought this approval, and it has that history, as you noted, as well. Um, it's just, it's, it just begs the question, of what is the purpose behind chemical abortion drugs at the end of the day? It's, not, it's definitely not women's health, that's for sure.
2: Great question. Other questions? Yes, in the back here.
3: Um, my name is Aaron. I'm with the Beckett Fund. And we recently had a case where um, there was a Catholic clinic out in Colorado um, who was offering APR and they were accused of medical malpractice. So I'm just wondering, do you guys think that those types of cases are going to start to pop up around the states more? And do you think that um, the ruling in the Fifth Circuit, depending on what happens, could have any influence on if those cases are going to start to pop up?
0: Well, I appreciate you bringing up abortion pill reversal. And I'm going to asked Dr. Francis to talk about it a little more it's it's a, it's a positive story this ne- to this negative story in many respects um, I think our our lawsuit at the end of the day is going to be independent of what happens. I think uh, because this is focused on what the FDA was supposed to do and failed to do, abortion pill reverse is a little different. It's kind of like the I would say the private sector's response to this, and it truly gives women a choice about this. And there is a you know it's a two drug regimen, and I think this is where the lawyer needs to stop talking and let the doctor talk. <laughs> but it is a positive development, and kudos to the Beckett Fund for what you've done to defend that because it was so important. To so far, the victories that you have obtained because this is such a life-affirming option for women who do take Mythopristone.
3: Dr. Francis, if you would explain how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I you know, I think it's good for us to sit back and think about why is the abortion industry so opposed to abortion pill reversal? And because, as Eric said, it truly is an opportunity for women to have a second chance at choice and for their child to have a second chance at life. So it is an amazing therapy that we now have if a woman changes her mind after taking that first drug, mifepristone, if she changes her mind about completing her abortion, which we know happens quite frequently and is happening even more so now that women aren't even receiving counseling before they start these drugs, if she changes her mind and wants to save her baby, we have about a 68% chance of being able to intervene and save the life of her child. Simply by giving her natural progesterone, that hormone that mifepristone is meant to block the effects of, um, through a well known, well established biochemical principle, we can give progesterone to outcompete the mifepristone and have the effect that it needs to have to, to support that developing baby. Um, There are more than 4,500 babies that are alive today because of the miracle of abortion pill reversal, including babies that I have delivered. I have two women right now who are pregnant and getting close to delivery thanks to abortion pill reversal. And I will just, I'll, I'll end by saying this, that the text messages that I continue to receive from one of those patients in particular, every couple of months she'll just check in with me and let me know how she's doing. Over and over and over again, she has said, I am so, so thankful that this was available. I want more women to know that this is available. Now I'm gonna have the chance to know my daughter and I wouldn't have gotten that chance were it not for this. Mm -hmm. And so what I would say to states that are thinking about challenging abortion pill reversal like the state of Colorado has done, why do you want to deny women the choice and the chance to have their baby, to see their baby born, to have that lifetime of memories with that baby. Why are we denying women that choice? You know, I think it's because the abortion industry doesn't want to acknowledge that there's something there to save, that that's a human being Mm -hmm. deserving of life. They also don't want to admit that women regret their choice. And yet I have heard a very similar story over and over and over again from women who were seeking abortion pill reversal. They've said, you know, When I found out I was pregnant, it was like immediately I was walking around in a fog. They were in that crisis moment, right? All they could think about was, how on earth am I going to do this? And then when they took that first drug, it was like, the crisis has passed. But then as soon as that happened, it was like the fog lifted, and immediately they could think clearly again. And immediately they said, oh, my goodness, what did I do? My very first abortion pill reversal patient That is exactly what happened to her. The second the door to Planned Parenthood closed behind her when she left after taking that first pill, she knew she'd made the wrong decision. And she went home and she Googled, can I reverse my abortion? And that's how she was connected with me. So we know that this is happening. It may not be every woman who starts the abortion process that regrets it and changes her mind. But even if it was only five women, why would we want to deny this option to those five women? And we know that it's not. We know that it's thousands. And and since the FDA has changed these safeguards and women are not receiving counseling, Heartbeat International, who runs the Abortion Pill Reversal Network, has said that they have seen their calls into the network increase significantly. So we know that more and more women are questioning their decision.
2: And it sounds like we need more messaging precisely on that issue to let individuals know that there is a choice after they begin the process and that these are chemical technologies that are available to them.
3: Absolutely, because it's also very time-sensitive. So women need to start the process within 72 hours of taking that, that first drug, and the sooner the better. So it's really important that we be talking about this and that women know that that's an option.
2: Before I take another in-person question, I think we have an online question that I'll get to.
3: We have two questions from online that I'll combine into one. We all have a right to expect that existing laws will be enforced impartially, doesn't federal law already prohibit mailing abortion drugs? New laws might be needed, but how can, ex- how can we get existing laws to be enforced? And relatedly, Congressman Good, could you speak more about the specific post office regulations that Congress can impact to stop mail order abortion pills?
1: Well, th- th- we have a lawless administration who continues to not enforce or to break laws that are in place. And you're seeing that with their abortion policy. Uh, you're seeing that with, and we need to be applauding and supporting Senator Tommy Tuberville and his efforts. And it's, it's it's amazing how someone like him can feel like they're on an island with a couple of allies around them. But I, I want to praise uh, Mike Lee and uh, Roger Marshall who've stood with him. But it's been a little bit lonely for Senator Tuberville from his Republican colleagues, by the way. And uh, because what Tommy Tuberville is trying to do is stand up against the Biden administration paying for abortion for members of the military. And uh, so you have a lawless administration, and specifically, right, they want to they want to provide funding for Mifepristone, and we're trying to block that, certainly in the appropriations process. Uh, but we have a lawless administration, whether it's at the border, whether it's with abortion policy, and so Congress needs to stand in the gap and try to hold them accountable with funding, as well as with passing legislation, as well as what – uh, Mr. Baptist was talking about where we're requiring the regulatory agencies, the departments, and the bureaucrats to follow the wishes of Congress. Uh, but specific with with the post office, that just gives, with us having congressional authority over the mail system, over the post office, that is one of the enumerated powers in the Constitution. Imagine that, that we actually should follow as a federal government the enumerated powers and what the limits of, of uh, federal action or federal responsibility. And one of those certainly is... Uh, our authority over the post office. And so we, that is just another justification or a basis for congressional action on the issue. Mm.
2: Eric, let me ask you, the law that we were referencing is the Comstock Act, which has been around, as you know, for quite some time, never been repealed. Some attempts have been made to remove the provision that prohibits the use of the mails, or the mail systems, to ship abortion. So does that act play at all into your litigation against the FDA? It's it's
0: one of our claims in our lawsuit. So there's a longstanding federal law that criminalizes the mailing of abortion drugs across state lines, whether by mail or a third-party carrier, common carrier, or a third-party express company. And so that's been on the books as part of our lawsuit. The district court agreed with us there. Um, the Fifth Circuit didn't have to reach it because what the, the FDA did was so illegal they found other laws that were violated, and we don't need to reach the Comstock Act. Um, again, this is one of those things where we the FDA violated m- multiple levels of law, and that's what we've told the Supreme Court. You know, you you here's a menu of options of illegal activities by the FDA. You only need to agree with one to strike down what the FDA did here. And so it's the lawlessness of the, the Biden administration in particular, it's the Department of Justice failure to follow and execute the laws that it's been entrusted to prosecute and follow. So that's, that's the problem why it's not being done. But at the same time, there's a different part of it. The FDA is not just governed by the laws that directly regulate the agency. The FDA and any federal agency cannot authorize and permit what is illegal under a US law. That's just a basic 101, what we call administrative law. And that's what it did here. So the FDA says, well, the Comstock law doesn't apply to us. So, "Well, yeah, you can't go tell people to go commit a felony and do that. That's, that's, that's arbitrary and capricious under the Administrative Procedure Act. And again, this is one of the many reasons why we've won today in this case.
2: Other questions? Yes, one here in front.
1: Hello, uh, my name is Sharon Heigel and I actually work for Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, so very familiar with CLI's work. So the previous two questions kind of addressed uh, part of the question I had related to mail order abortion pills and what can Congress do and we can do uh, to stop that. But I actually also wanted to ask um, you know, we're seeing mobile abortion clinics now on the borders of states that have no, uh, limitations or anything like that. So what can we do to stop that? Because I mean, it's our hard enough to track, uh, you know, mail order abortion pills online, but this it's popping up everywhere. So, so what can we do Congress otherwise to, uh, stop the proliferation of these mobile abortion clinics? Let anyone from the panel take that. Well, there's obviously there's state law that would apply as well as the opportunity for federal law to apply. But on the federal level, I just say we've got to have a will to fight on the issue. And I, I live and work in the political realm. And I was 50 years, 55 years old. I ran for Congress, so I'm new to the political world. Uh, but w- we've got to have the political will to do it. And I hope that everyone here votes and I don't know everybody's politics, but uh, we need to demand our, repre- our, our candidates and our elected officials stand up for life. And I predicted a year ago it would happen, we'd have the great departure on this issue. You know, on the, on, from a congressional teleabortion standpoint, again, we do have a bill that would make it more difficult. Our teleabortion prevention act uh, wouldn't eliminate it, but at least make it more difficult because what Dr. French was talking about is they don't, the other side does not want things like parental notification. They don't want waiting periods. They don't want sonograms because they want more abortion. And it comes from a lot of different angles. Some of it's because abortion is big business. Uh, even even the, we, we now, we don't control the corporate boardrooms anymore. They're very leftist and very uh, progressive, shall we say. And think about it. They want to provide for abortion in their health care programs. Why would that be? That's a whole lot cheaper than birth, isn't it? And so uh, there, there's, abortion is a big business, certainly. Uh, but we need to demand of our elected officials. They stand up and be counted and fight for this. And I predicted, again, a year ago, we'd have this great departure on this issue that started after the Dobbs decision, when all of a sudden it's kind of like going back several years to when you had the Republican majority House pass all these messaging bills to overturn Obamacare until we got the majorities of both houses in the White House. And then we didn't pass it anymore when we had actual responsibility to, to own the impact of that. And the same thing I thought would be true with with Dobbs being overturned. And then a year ago, you had a prominent presidential uh, candidate condemn and blame pro-lifers for uh, the 2022 midterms. Then you have a governor in our most southern state do a six-week heartbeat bell for what used to be a purple state. I'm old enough to remember the hanging chads of 23 years ago. And he won by four percent. I'm sorry, half a percent four years ago. He does a six-week heartbeat bill in what was used to be a purple state, and he wins by 20 points. And we've got a prominent presidential candidate saying that was a terrible mistake and a terrible thing that that governor did that. So, what we need is a will to fight, and we pro-lifers need to hold our elected officials. It's not just through the through the ballot box, but that is part of it, along with the legal fight, along with. The education the hearts and minds and supporting crisis pregnancy centers and and so it is a multi-pronged effort as i said
2: because we're getting close on time let me give each of my panelists an opportunity to just share a final word i'll start with dr francis
3: um so i think the final thing that i would say is one thing that i certainly have learned in the last uh, year and a half now almost since the dobbs decision is we have a lot of work to do educating and correcting misinformation that's coming out from the other side and specifically you know as a physician obviously i'm i'm in the medical realm and the level of misinformation inaccurate information that's come out of physicians even unfortunately who are pro abortion has just kind of been astounding to me and i think this issue of chemical abortion is is one of the worst and so what I would want um, women to know would be that this is, again, like I said before, not the easy fix that it's being sold to you as, and that you deserve much better. You should demand much better. And what I would say to our policymakers is, and you know, the FDA and and anyone who's in charge of making decisions on this, is that women and girls in this country deserve better. That the the purpose of the profession of medicine is to preserve and restore health to our patients, both of our patients, by the way, not just our born patients, but also our pre-born patients, and that we as physicians need to have the ability to be able to do that. And so, you know, I think, like I said, this, this issue is... Um, one of the most glaring, I think, of how abortion is harming not just preborn children across this country, but their mothers as well. And it's time for, for us to do a lot more education and, and raise the alarm on this. Eric.
0: Since we're a few blocks away from the Supreme Court, uh, I kind of <laughs> want to go back to the Dobbs decision, which was issued just over a year ago, and what was the promise of Dobbs? It was the promise to return the issue of abortion back to the people and their elected representatives. The promise of Dobbs cannot be fulfilled if chemical abortion drugs can be mailed to all 50 states, despite what those elected representatives in those states and their people wanted to do to protect their women and children. If they cannot stop those drugs from coming within their borders because the FDA has promoted, pushed, and approved mail-order chemical abortions, then the promise of Dobbs can never be fulfilled. And that's a message we've sent to the Supreme Court and our allies are doing the same thing because maybe the court's asking, not another abortion related case, we just decided Dobbs, like why so soon, why this issue? Well, this issue is imperative if if the promise of Dobbs is gonna be fulfilled and follow through with at the state level at least.
2: Congressman, if you would. I'll
1: make one more additional political observation for those who are wringing their hands and fearful after the election, at least in my commonwealth, my home state of Virginia, uh, just a few days ago. And I just wanna break it down for you very, very uh, practically here. In Virginia, after redistricting that took place, the Supreme Court of Virginia did the the redistricting a a year and a half ago, or or two years ago now, I guess, but it got in place a a year ago. It greatly diminished the number of competitive House and Senate districts in Virginia. So there's 100 House districts in the, in the General Assembly, and 89 of those are not competitive, meaning they're either 70 percent blue or 70 percent red districts, where either Trump and Yunkin won them by 70 percent, or Biden and McAuliffe won them by 70 percent, and a, ch- a chimpanzee or Mickey Mouse could run, and they're going to win with an ROD, depending on the district. So that left 11 competitive House districts, We did win seven out of the 11, but we had to win 10 out of 11 to get the majority. And we could and should have done better, and I would submit that we did not inspire and motivate our base because we were too moderate. And the Senate was even more more, uh, determinative. It was 20 to 16, I mean there's 40 Senate seats, 20 of those are deep blue 70% seats, 16 are deep red seats, there was four competitive seats. So you can do the math real quick. We had to win all four in order to have Winsome Sears, Lieutenant Governor, be able to break the tie. And we won three out of four. So we didn't quite hit our goal of winning all four. But the most pro-choice of the four Republicans lost. The most pro-life of those Republicans won in those competitive districts. So for all those hand-wringing and, oh, we got to move away from abortion. First of all, that would be morally wrong. But it also, I don't believe it's its the political answer, even if it were, even, uh, I don't believe it is a political answer because we're right on every other issue and we need to be bold and unapologetic on this issue as well. Thank you.
2: Well, we thank all of you for joining us today at the Heritage Foundation. The recording of today's event is online at heritage.org. We encourage you to share it with your networks as well. And we look forward to welcoming you back to the Heritage Foundation soon. Please join me in thanking our panelists.